we have this one opportunity. Let's not lose it. Ma'am, uh, she's selling bread. Jesus. Those men are about to disperse. Engage now. Ma'am, I understand we have clearance. I will fire if I see the HVIs moving or when this girl's out of the frag radius. But I want to give her a chance to get out of the way. Lieutenant. You have clearance. There is a lot more at stake than you see here in this image. Ma'am, I need you to run the collateral damage. Ashton again with this girl up front. The situation has not changed, Lieutenant. You are cleared to engage. Welcome to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. For new listeners, this podcast seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what may be loosely and collectively called the Laws of War. I'd encourage you to listen to episode one, in which I talk more about the purpose and scope of the podcast and explain some of the basic framework of these legal regimes, and also introduce some of the issues that are to be examined in more detail through discussion with experts in the following episodes. And if you're a regular listener, thank you again for your support. And please do give us a thumbs up or a five-star rating in your podcast platform, and consider giving a plug for the podcast on social media. More info about the podcast with links to the materials discussed, reading recommendations, and bios of our guests can all be found on our website, which is at jibjabpodcast.com. I should add that if you ever want to cite one of the episodes in your scholarship, there is a link on the website for how to do that under Chicago APA and Blue Book style. And finally, please do feel free to send me ideas for future episodes. This episode is something a little bit different. I mentioned in our last episode that we might be doing some cross-posting with other podcasts, and this is the first of those. The cross-post is with the great podcast called Law on Film, which is produced by Jonathan Hafitz. Jonathan is a professor of law at Seton Hall Law School and is an expert in national security, international criminal law, and constitutional law, among other things, and was legal counsel on several of the Guantanamo Bay detainee cases. His podcast explores the rich connection between law and film. And as I say in our discussion, I'm really somewhat envious of him for doing this. I love film, and as my students will attest to, I think that film and literature are wonderful ways to explore and illustrate legal issues. And so I think Jonathan's podcast is just a wonderful idea. So we got to talking about the two podcasts in the margins of conference recently and hit on the idea of doing a cross-posting. So in this episode, we explore the movie Eye in the Sky, which I'm guessing most of the listeners of this podcast will have seen or certainly know about. I'll leave the intro to the film to Jonathan. This is really his podcast episode, and he's interviewing me on the film. So I've only edited his somewhat embarrassingly long and generous bio of me, since I think you guys all know who I am. I do want to say a couple of words, however, about the timing. I can imagine some of you thinking that it is somewhat self-indulgent or frivolous to be doing an episode about a film when there's just so much to be said about the current conflicts in the world. And I do get that. But the film grapples with important legal, ethical, strategic, and political issues that are very much relevant to those conflicts. And what's more, films like this actually help to shape the public's understanding of those issues, for better or worse. I know this film has its critics among the experts on IHL. But as you will hear, I tend to think that it does a good job of exploring and illustrating some of these issues, and I actually use it to teach my course on the law of armed conflict. So with all of that said, I bring you Jonathan Hafitz and Law on Film on Eye in the Sky. Hi, I'm Jonathan Hafitz, and welcome to Law and Film, a podcast that explores the rich connections between law and film. Law is critical to many films. Film, in turn, tells us a lot about the law. In each episode, we'll examine a film that's noteworthy from a legal perspective. 
What legal issues does the film explore? What does it get right about the law, and what does it get wrong? How is law important to understanding the film, and what does the film teach us about the law and about the larger social and cultural context in which it operates? Our film this episode is Eye in the Sky, a 2015 movie directed by Gavin Hood based on a script by Guy Hebert, which depicts a multinational team's operation aimed at high-level operatives from the Al-Shabaab terrorist group in Nairobi, Kenya. When the British Army learns of the location of the suspects, one of whom is a British citizen, they plan to capture them. But that all changes when surveillance reveals the suspects are preparing two new recruits to carry out a suicide bombing. UK military officials, with the support of their US partner, seek to shift the operation from capture to kill because the threat appears imminent and any attempt to capture the suspects would lead to an armed confrontation since the area the suspects are in is controlled by Al-Shabaab militants. A series of tense, high-stakes moments ensue as officials must decide whether to authorize a lethal drone strike to avoid a possible terrorist attack despite the possibility of civilian casualties, including of a young girl who's nearby. Eye in the Sky, which stars Helen Mirren, Aaron Paul, Barkhad Abdi, and Alan Rickman in his last screen role, depicts the new reality of drone warfare and the many complex legal and moral issues it raises. To discuss the film, I'm joined today by Craig Martin. Craig is a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. Last but certainly not least, Craig is also the creator and host of the acclaimed Jib Jab The Laws of War podcast, in which he interviews both top and upcoming experts in different aspects of the laws of war. Welcome, Craig. It's great to have you on. Well, thanks so much. It's it's wonderful to be here. I'm I'm really quite envious of your podcast, uh, and you know I'm thinking I should have created a podcast on law and film. It's a great idea. Well, thank you, and I and I'm a huge fan of your podcast, and it's great to have you on to talk about this movie, which is I think really delves into a lot of the issues on the laws of war. Uh, so yeah, I'm just thrilled. So well, let's let's jump in. So in the opening moments of the film. The British military counterterrorism officials learn that three high-level suspects from the East Africa-based terrorist group Al-Shabaab will soon be meeting with two new recruits in Nairobi, Kenya. We learn the British have been tracking the suspects for six years, and finally, they appear to have an opportunity to capture them and presumably bring at least the British citizen back to the UK for trial. The British Army Colonel Catherine Powell, who's played by Helen Mirren, briefs the U.S. Air Force team members who are located in Nevada on the operation, which she describes as an operation to capture. And she tells the U.S. airmen they'll be operating a drone and serving as the eye in the sky for the operation. So can you just talk a little bit about the context here in terms of al-Shabaab, the operation, and what's going on at the time in Kenya? Sure. So, you know, there's been ongoing conflict between Al-Shabaab, which is a organized armed group classified by many countries as a terrorist organization operating out of uh, Somalia. Kenya had invaded Somalia. There had been ongoing conflict back and forth between Al-Shabaab forces and Kenyan forces. And around the time of this movie, Al-Shabaab had, in fact, been established in Kenya itself, it had conducted a number of terrorist attacks. There was a very famous uh, attack on a mall uh, not long before this movie came out. 
But the other context that I think is important for, for viewers of the movie to understand is that in 2015, the United Kingdom conducted a targeted killing of a British citizen in Syria, in Raqqa. And at the time, Prime Minister Cameron made a speech to Parliament saying that this had been a departure from British policy. And while this movie was still in theaters, the House of Lords issued a report uh, raising serious questions about the legal basis upon which the British forces had conducted this attack on a British citizen in Syria. And in particular, questioned whether the law of armed conflict applied, whether international human rights law applied, whether this was a use of force against Syria that was not justified. So the House of Lords report raised a whole host of questions that indeed are, I think, explored to some extent in the movie. That's such an interesting context where the movie's in dialogue with what's going on actually at the time in the House of Lords. And I mean, as well in the, in the, in the U.S., I think there was less of a debate uh, the U.S. had sort of resolved or come to terms with its issues um, or any concerns it had. Well, you know, a lot of the film talks about whether the particular strike uh, is justified. But let's step back for a minute and just talk about whether this is an armed conflict at all. Right. Because what happens is that there's a key shift when drone surveillance which is obtained by getting a tiny drone shaped like a beetle inside the terrorist safe house, reveals the suspects are now arming two suicide bombers for what appears to be an attack on civilian targets. You had mentioned the recent attack by al-Shabaab at the shopping mall in Nairobi, which killed over 70 people, which is uh, expressly referenced in the film. And so because the suspects have moved to a house in an area controlled by al-Shabaab, the British Army officials say capturing them or attempting to capture them would lead to high casualties. So at this point, the officials seek to alter the rules of engagement and change the operation from capture to kill. And the movie seems to assume that a lethal strike, launching a Hellfire missile, as they say, through the roof, might be legal. What informs that assumption? And is there an armed conflict such that international humanitarian law applies at all in this situation? Yeah, so I think that's a fundamentally important question, which the movie, to be frank, doesn't really explore, right? There is, as you say, they're, they're working on this assumption that international humanitarian law, or the law of armed conflict, is operating, right? They're, they begin talking about military necessity, the principle of proportionality. These are principles of IHL. And so it, they're assuming that IHL applies, and yet it's not clear that that assumption is accurate, right? So this is precisely what the report from the House of Lords was raising uh, with respect to the targeted killing of the, the British citizen in Raqqa in Syria. And so just to situate this for those who haven't yet seen the movie, and I, I do commend the movie to those who haven't seen it yet. It's a great movie, leaving aside its legal uh, interest. But, you know, there's a, a group of Kenyan soldiers under the command of a senior officer standing by to effect the, the capture and then there are the British, you know, the British colonel with her team in London directing the operation. There are the American forces directing the drone in Nevada, which is quite common. And there's an intelligence unit in Hawaii. And this, I should just pause for a second to say that this depiction of operations is, is really quite accurate, right? So American drone strike operations were typically took this kind of configuration. There would be a, a drone operating team in Las Vegas. There would be an intelligence team operating somewhere else 
assessing and analyzing the video feed that was coming in from the drone and at the command center might be somewhere else entirely. And uh, this is being a joint, a joint operation, you know, the British are, are controlling. And I should just say that where a lot of the drama takes place is in what is called COBRA, which is this high level group involving ministers of the British cabinet in a room determining what actions uh, should be taken. You know, so the general who's overseeing the, the operation along with a deputy minister from the foreign ministry and the attorney general, uh, as well as I think a member of the opposition party. So, well, as you say, initially there's going to be this capture operation. But what's interesting is that, as you say, they, the high-level targets move into a area of Nairobi that is controlled by al-Shabaab and all of a sudden makes the capture option impossible. And even before the British forces gain knowledge of the pending imminent suicide bombing, Helen Mirren, the colonel, says, well, since capture is no longer an option, we have to move to a kill operation because she's been tracking this high-level target, this British uh, woman who is working with al-Shabaab for five years, and she's on a so-called kill list. And so the colonel says, we have to move to a kill operation, which raises this question, on what basis would a lethal strike be effected? Because you have to ask the question, is al-Shabaab in an armed conflict, a non-international armed conflict with the United Kingdom? Is it in a, a, a non-international armed conflict with Kenya? You know, would Kenya be justified and authorized under the, the law of armed conflict, or IHL, to engage in lethal operations against al-Shabaab in the Nairobi suburb? Right? Only if there's an armed conflict ongoing, can you invoke IHL to provide any of the kind of authority for this sort of lethal strike? If IHL is not operating, then domestic criminal law and international human rights law applies. And you know the, the report from the House of Lords raised this question and said, well, with respect to the killing of the British citizen in Syria, was this actually under the European Convention on Human Rights and in particular, the, the right to life? And had that been violated in the killing? Uh, right, it's a, it's a different analysis as to when lethal force can be used under both domestic criminal law and under international human rights law than it, there is under IHL. So it's a fundamentally important question. The movie sort of assumes that IHL applies, that somehow Kenya and Al-Shabaab are in an armed conflict and the British and the Americans are assisting Kenya in that armed conflict, but it's never really explicitly explored. God, that's a, it's a great point, and to and the two frameworks you mentioned, especially for my listeners who are a little uh, maybe less specialized, you talk about the two different frameworks: the law of peacetime, right, the law of governance, which is human rights law, and then the law of armed conflict, the law of war, or IHL. Just use the term somewhat interchangeably, where there's a much greater ability for states to conduct lethal operations, and as you say. The film kind of just assumes in some sense that IHL applies that we are in this armed conflict situation. And then the question is whether this particular strike is justified under IHL principles without talking about whether this is really a basically the rules of law enforcement in peacetime should apply with the much stricter rules governing the use of force. Yeah. And I do think that the movie is quite explicitly responding to the strike in Syria. Because there's a reference, you know, one of the members in the Cobra room asks the general the question, 
has the UK ever conducted a drone strike in a, quote, friendly country, not at war? Hold on. This is a change of mission from a capture to a shoot to kill, isn't it? Yes, it is. Are we all right with that? I'm sure we are not. There are two British citizens and an American as target. This mission has the full support of Kenya and the United States. For a drone strike? Yes, a missile fired from an RPA is part of an agreed contingency plan in circumstances like this. Do we have permission to proceed? No. Such a plan should not have been signed off by the PM without the authority of Parliament. Operational issues are not generally discussed at Cabinet and certainly not at Parliament. I know the protocol. I'm talking about what should be happening. Angela, in my view, all the legal criteria for an attack have been met. Namely, this is a military necessity, there is no reasonable alternative, and the force to be used is in proportion to the threat. That should answer your question. It does not, George. Has there ever been a British-led drone attack on a city in a friendly country that is not at war? General? I do not believe so, no. Then how can we sanction it? Now, Syria was not really necessarily a friendly country, but the prime minister in, in the House of Commons had said that this was, in fact, the use of force in a territory of a country with which the United Kingdom was not at war. And so the, the movie, I think, is quite ex explicitly addressing this situation of this recent drone strike in Syria by raising the issue in the context of al-Shabaab in Kenya. Right. And, they, and they, they talk about the friendly country not at war. It's almost more from a policy political perspective, like, have we done this? It seems unprecedented, the British official says, but more possibly about maybe the political blowback than some of the legal issues. Well, I think it's both, right? Yeah. So there's the political and policy sort of blowback issue. But again, from a, from a purely legal perspective, if you're not in an armed conflict, then international humanitarian law does not apply. And you cannot rely on IHL for the broader authorities to use lethal force to engage in violence, right? That violence that would otherwise be unlawful under both domestic criminal law or international human rights law. You, you cannot engage in that if there's not an armed conflict operating, right? The existence of an armed conflict triggers the operation of IHL, which then governs how lethal force can be used. And, and it, as you say, it's a wider scope. And for your listeners who are not sort of steeped in this, right? I mean, IHL has a, this built-in tension where on the one hand, it authorizes, although different people would have differing views on the extent to which it actually authorizes. Some would say there has to be some prior other legal authorization. But in any event, once you're in an armed conflict, IHL authorizes lethal force and, and immunizes combatants for the lawful use of, of lethal force and, and engaging in destructive violence that would otherwise be unlawful. But at the same time, IHL operates to try to limit human suffering, and in particular, suffering of civilians and people who are hors de combat, right? So it has this dual role. It's both authorizing violence and, and the use of lethal force, but at the same time, trying to limit that to that which is strictly necessary and that which is proportionate to the, to the objectives. And how does Kenya's, because Kenya's participating in the operation, so they're a joint participant and the state of Kenya is on board. Does that, how does that affect the analysis, if at all? Yeah, no, I think that that's crucial, right? Because for, first of all, if Kenya is not on board, if Kenya is objecting, for example, then the the firing of a missile at, at, at a house in Nairobi would constitute a use of force and it would be a, a violation of the other legal regime that governs 
armed conflict use of force, which is the use ad bellum regime. But also the fact that Kenya is on board and it, it is Kenya's participation or involvement in a non-international armed conflict with al-Shabaab that makes it most plausible that there is an armed conflict going on here, right? And I, I think it is plausible to say that al-Shabaab is occupying this suburb, right? The Kenyan colonel or general, I forget what rank he is, says, well, we can't go into that suburb without triggering a bloodbath. So it's clear that there is conflict between al-Shabaab and Kenyan forces in that space. Uh, and so it's plausible to say that that is the, the non-international armed conflict that's operating here that gives rise to the operation of IHL. And so the idea of this kill list, right? Can you talk a little bit about that and how that kind of relates to these issues? So, I mean, this is a, a very controversial issue and we could spend a lot of time talking about it. But again, just to back up and perhaps for your listeners who, who aren't steeped in IHL and laws of war, Right. Once you have the existence of an armed conflict, then lethal force is, is authorized, is lawful, but only by combatants and in only against both military objectives or combatants in the context of what's called an international armed conflict. Right? You, you can only target combatants or civilians who are taking direct part in hostilities or there's, there's debate and controversy over whether members of armed groups like al-Shabaab can be characterized as fighters or people who are fulfilling a continuous combat function such that they are akin to combatants in an international armed conflict. The, the key issue is, can you kill someone on the basis of their status, right? which you can in the, in the, in the context of an international armed conflict, combatants, people running around in, in uniforms and carrying weapons openly are combatants and who can be targeted on the basis of their status. Civilians, on the other hand, are protected. They are not to be targeted. And this is a fundamental core principle of IHL is the principle of distinction. You cannot target civilians unless and until and for such time as they're taking direct part in hostilities. So if a civilian picks up a weapon, you know, like the French resistance in World War II movies, then they can be targeted for such time as they are taking direct part in hostilities. So there is a controversy over, well, how do you characterize al-Shabaab, for example, or members of al-Shabaab? Can they be targeted on the basis of their status as members of al-Shabaab, or must you wait for them to be taking direct part in hostilities? So bringing this back to the movie, at the point where they are putting on, preparing these two new recruits to engage in a suicide bombing, it is clear that everyone in that house is now, if nothing else, a civilian taking direct part in hostilities. Right, and that at that point they are definitely targetable under IHL uh, rules. But again, I, I refer back to what I was started to say earlier when the Colonel Helen Mirren, when she first learns that they've moved to a, a neighborhood controlled by Al Shabaab and the capture options off the table, she says, "Well, we now have to put a missile through the roof." Not based on the fact that they're about to engage in a suicide bombing, but just in the fact that well, we can't capture them, and she's on a kill list. Well. There is a very significant debate over the lawfulness, plausibility of these so-called kill lists. And the British would argue they don't have kill lists, right? The kill lists were really something that the Americans developed. You know, in the movie, you know, they, they keep referring to the fact that the three people in the house are number two, four, and five on the East Africa kill list, which is something that the American government had developed. But this idea that you can use lethal force against someone simply because you've put them on some list is highly controversial. You, know, you may remember that Anwar al-Alaki, the American-born 
imam who ends up you know, working with al-Qaeda uh, al in the Arabian Peninsula or AQAP in Yemen is killed by the Obama administration in 2011. And it was argued at the time that he had been involved in developing and directing imminent terrorist attacks on the United States. But the fact was he had been put on a kill list and he was killed more than a year after he had been put on that kill list. And so to argue that he was killed as sort of a, an act of self-defense in response to an imminent armed attack is, is pretty difficult. You know, and his father had actually gone to court to try to get an injunction against the, the operation against him. And ironically, the court said, well, it's, it's not ripe yet. I, I remember it well. I, was, I worked a little bit on it. I was at the ACLU at the time on the Al-Laki lawsuit. And there's kind of a reference to it, I think, in the, in the movie when they... You know, when they're in the war room in London, right, they, you know, the member of the U.S. National Security Council calls in to give her two cents on the U.S. position. And I think there's a reference that there was a U.S. citizen as one of the people who was going to be involved in the suicide bombing. And she's like, that's not an issue. Kind of we've crossed that bridge. We made that decision. He's targetable. Right. Uh, so, yeah, it's interesting. So basically, I think what you're saying is, assuming it's, you know, the IHL framework applies, the debate. The legal debate should have been around imminence or, I mean, you know, that's the real, you know, it should have been, is, is the, the attack imminent as opposed to uh, this notion of a kill list? And then that's sort of where the controversy lies. Well, and maybe not so much imminence. I, I do think that, you know, once they're putting on the vest, then yes, there's going to be an imminent uh, attack. But that's what, what that goes to is the temporal window within which you determine that a civilian is taking direct part in hostilities. So interestingly, this, the Israeli Supreme Court has addressed this question of what constitutes taking direct part in hostilities, which is known by the acronym DPH, right? IHL is full of acronyms. And so here, I mean, there's no question that they are at this point taking direct part in hostilities. I, I think that the only merit or, or the only way a kill list makes any sense within the IHL framework is if you accept that some individuals in organized armed groups can be targeted on the basis of their status because they are engaging in a continuous combat function. The kill list is, is a form of identifying who is performing a continuous combat function and who therefore can be targeted on the basis of their status. But other than that, I think this idea of a, of a kill list makes no sense in the context of IHL. And if we're not accepting the IHL framework, if we're going to you know, say this is a, you know, we're going to operate within human rights law and the kind of law of peacetime norms, I mean, would there still be a, a argument or space for the use of lethal force? And when in this particular situation might, might it have been used? So it's a very different framework, right? And, and there's a great book on targeted killing that I think half of the book is approaching targeted killing from the perspective of domestic criminal and international human, human rights law. And then the second half is from an IHL perspective. The threshold for use of lethal force in a law enforcement context is obviously much higher, right? You have to show imminent danger of, of death or injury to, to yourself or others. So that might be met in this context, although you have to ask the question, well, why are the British and the Americans the ones engaging in this use of lethal force if it's a law enforcement operation in Kenya, right? And, and we can come back to this, but I think, you know, for, for twail scholars, right, third world approaches to international law would look at this movie from a different lens and say, like, why are the Kenyan forces so subordinate in the conduct of this operation, right? There's a, there's a moment when the colonel, the British colonel is calling the the Kenyan officer and saying, look, you got to get one of your guys closer to the 
to the house and I don't care if it's, it, it, I don't care what the risk of death to him is mm-hmm. and he almost gets killed and really there's there's a lot going on there from sort of a twail perspective too I think I'm not a twail scholar but it, it strikes me that there's something to be said about the the relationship between the Americans the British and the Kenyans in the film yeah certainly I mean and there's the pressure that the Colonel Helen Miram braces on I think it's the Kenyan uh, military official yep. to to redo and shade uh, the collateral damage estimate, which we'll get, which we'll talk about in a minute, so that it, the strike can go forward. So yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. I mean, Kenya's sort of on board. They've addressed the sort of sovereignty issues, so Kenyan is you know a willing participant. But there's still some tensions and dynamics around this, which are very interesting. Yeah, because I mean, at the end of the day, if there is going to be a suicide bombing, it's going to be in Nairobi. Right. So you would think that the Kenyans should have the lead in deciding what risks should be taken to prevent this suicide bombing. But in fact, it's the British saying, no, 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 you know, you got to get your people in there. We don't care what the risks are to them. We got to stop this British terrorist from doing what she's doing. So just to move to um, the jib, if we can, the use in Bella, right? right? <laughs> Which is kind of, I think, the primary focus in some ways of the drama in the movie. That is whether or not this particular use of force is justified under IHL. So the the factors are right. The main factors are necessity, proportionality, and precautions in attack. Right. Those are the calculations in terms of whether or not the lethal strike can go forward. And applying these critical in applying these factors, the critical decisions in the movie revolve around the young girl the young Kenyan girl who's unknowingly decided to set up shop and sell bread right outside the safe house uh, where the British are planning to launch the, the Hellfire missile. And so there's a real risk she's going to be killed in the strike. So how does the girl affect the analysis? So again, I think just to reiterate what you said for your, for your listeners who are not steeped in IHL, right? the, there are some core principles of IHL that would apply here. The first being you know, military necessity, which is both a facilitating principle and a limiting principle, right? So you have to establish that this is, in fact, necessary, that it's the only alternative. As it, and this, that's the way, the way that the principle operates as a limiting principle. And then there is the principle of distinction, right, which is fundamentally important. Right? You, you, it is prohibited to target civilians. So this gets to the question of, well, who are these people in the house? Are they civilians? Are they taking direct part in hostilities and so forth? Then is the principle of proportionality, which is the real issue in the movie, in some sense, right? And the principle of proportionality, which is often deeply misunderstood, especially in the media, the principle of proportionality in IHL, in distinction from how it operates, because there is a similar principle of proportionality in USAD Bellum, but they are quite different in the way they operate and what they're balancing. The principle of proportionality in IHL says that the expected harm to civilians cannot be excessive in relation to the direct and concrete military advantage anticipated to be obtained by the strike, right? So it's the expected harm to civilians in relation to the direct and concrete anticipated military advantage. So you have to look at the information that the commander had at the time, not, you can't sort of look at the facts that are known after the fact, you know, if there were 20 people in a basement under the house that you didn't know about, and they get killed, that's not relevant to the determination of whether the principle of proportionality was satisfied. 
So here, yes, you have this little girl who is the daughter of a progressive Kenyan who's bringing her up to be an educated young girl. So we're in some sense being somewhat manipulated by the movie because this is like charming little girl that we're all rooting for who goes to sell bread right next to the safe house. And the question is, would killing her with a strike or, you know, the, the initial collateral damage estimate to use the sort of euphemistic acronyms that are used in IHL, the CDE, says there's like a 65% probability that she's going to be severely injured or killed. Is that excessive in relation to the direct and concrete military advantage? And what's interesting in the movie, I mean, there's a whole host of debate. And, you know, for those of you who haven't seen it yet, I'm sorry, there's all kinds of spoilers here. But, but I mean, part of the movie is it's, it's a real-time debate within the COBRA room about whether to proceed with the strike or not. But what's interesting is that it's stated quite clearly early on by the attorney general who's in the room, also by the JAG who's in, in the command room with the colonel, Helen Mirren, say, look, the, the principle of proportionality is met here, that given the suicide bombing and given the high value nature of the targets, the military advantage, the direct and concrete military advantage of using lethal force against them here would justify a, the killing of one civilian. And so that's not really where all of the drama lies, right? So that, that principle of proportionality is satisfied fairly early. The drama really often revolves more around the policy and strategic issues, right? And it is interesting. Like the Americans, of course, as you said, the, the National Security Advisors Council calls in and says, look, what are you waiting for? The Secretary of State has gotten on the phone while he's playing ping pong in China and says, what are you waiting for? Whereas the British are wringing their hands and referring up and getting into all kinds of debates, but it's in large measure about both the ethical, strategic, and political ramifications of the strike, as opposed to the pure legal issue. Yeah, the U.S. official says basically, right, I mean, her view is we're way off what we consider a dispute over you know, collateral damage, right? And she's probably right in terms of proportionality is, the requirements are probably met here, once you accept the IHL framework, given the the factors you you know you you explain, but I think you know I think you're absolutely right. It's that the debate is more about some of the moral, political, and ethical issues. The the basically they say that we could wait or we could go forward, and it's really about the policy decision, you know, of of whether or not we should go forward. Right. Well, so you did mention one other principle, which I think is illustrated quite brilliantly in the movie, which is the precautions in attack, right? So the principle of precautions in attack require armed forces to engage in all feasible measures to minimize the probability of harm to civilians in the conduct of any attack. And so here, again, lots of spoiler alerts, the little girl has gone to sell bread right beside the safe house. And so the Kenyan agent who's on the ground and is controlling the little, the tactical drones inside the house is told to go and buy the bread, right? So he runs and she's trying to buy the bread as a means of trying to get the girl to go away, right? To go home. When she sold all her bread, she can go home. She'll get out of the area and out of the blast radius. And so this is in a sense, in a very real sense, right? This is the, the conduct of all feasible measures to reduce and minimize harm. It doesn't work, right? But I'll leave that to the. You have to watch the movie, right? Yeah, no, it doesn't work. Uh, but it, I mean, it's really, uh, it's 
it certainly illustrates taking all feasible measures and taking that very seriously, that idea and going to sort of the, you know, the, the fullest possible extent to send goes in at great risk to great risk to the person who, you know, the kid that goes in to try to get her away and they're losing valuable time. And then I think at one point, Helen Mirren says, we're done with, we're done with the bread. Right. And again, right, this does raise this question of, you know, it, it it again implicates both principles of necessity and principles of precautions and attack. Is this the only alternative? Is this the time? Like, do you have to take the strike right now? Right. And they're making the argument, the military is making the argument, look, look, once they leave the house, they're going to have two cars. We're only going to be able to follow one. We don't know where they're going. Like, this is the time to take the strike. But, you know, some of the uh, opposing voices in the room, in the Cobra room are saying, well, we can wait. And, and this is where the policy issues come in. So the question is, the general says, are you really going to allow the killing of 80 people, 70 people in a mall for the purposes of saving this one little girl? And the member of parliament, I think, who is a member of the opposition party says, yes, I would. And by the way, it's from a strategic perspective, I'd rather Al-Shabaab kill 80 people than for it to become public that we killed one. That, that we put a drone strike into a little girl, which raises these sort of strategic and political implications that are sort of beyond the legal considerations, right? And this is where the general is losing all patience with these sorts of considerations. But there's this telling moment when the foreign minister is on the phone and the, the foreign minister asks, well, what if any of this video gets on YouTube? With respect, Foreign Secretary, are the lives of 80 people, including innocent children, really worth the price of winning the propaganda war? General, if we go ahead, might footage of our attack be leaked? Sir, the footage from the Reaper is completely secure. General, I would feel uncomfortable if we did not at least wait a little longer. If we go ahead and footage is leaked, and this girl is killed, then I think the country would be most disturbed. Foreign Secretary, it is our task to make the right military decision. We cannot engage in an argument about possible future postings on YouTube. With respect, General, revolutions are fueled by postings on YouTube. There's a really interesting, I think, illustration of the cabinet ministers taking a bit of a, a, a broader view uh, than the general who's looking at it from a purely military, like, military necessity. We've satisfied the legal requirements. Let's do what we came here to do. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the reference to the propaganda war, right? The larger propaganda war that the political official is pointing out, right? As, exactly as you said, right? The general says, I'm, you know, who's going to have to defend this? Or it's the foreign secretary. And you will, but as you said, right, I'd rather defend, I'd rather have al-Shabaab defend killing of 80 innocent people that have to defend the killing of the innocent girl because of the broader implications of this war and, and what's the sort of longer term strategy. I mean, I think there's, you know, once you're in the IHL framework and you accept the framework, there's a, you know, a very strong argument, the military argument that they should not wait in terms of this immediate moment. But if you step back and you look at the larger sort of the conflict in a larger scale or the situation in a larger, broader scale, exactly as you're saying there, the, the movie makes space uh, and does a good job presenting this counter-argument about what are the sort of long-term uh, ramifications of these drone strikes, even if, you know, they fulfill this short-term objective. And, you know, when I actually used this film to teach my law of armed conflict class. And we get into a discussion of the trolley problem because the, the movie does sort of set up the trolley problem, right? And for those of you, your listeners who haven't heard of the trolley problem, the idea is, right, you're, you're standing at the 
the fork in a rail line and there's a switch beside you that that diverts cars from one track to the other and you see a trolley coming barreling down the track and you look down the fork and there's six men standing on the one track and one on the other and you realize that if you do nothing the trolley the train cart is going to continue on down the track and kill the six and so you have the option of pulling the switch to divert the trolley to kill the one and the question is what are you going to do right are you going to pull the switch and you know most of my students not surprisingly i think most americans are so utilitarian consequentialists at heart you know they don't know it and so they say, yeah, of course, I'll pull the switch, right? It's better to save six than, you know, six lives are better than, are more valuable than one. Where, of course, the deontological Kantian approach would be, no, that there's, an, you know, the affirmative act of pulling the switch is you are now killing someone in a way that you would not if you do nothing, right? Yes, six people will die if you don't pull the switch, but you have not actually taken action to kill them. And, and there is a philosophical difference in that in the taking of no action. And this problem, I mean, this, I mean, the, the trolley problem is, of, of course, a thought experiment that is used to tease out these differences between deontological and utilitarian consequentialist thinking, but it is presented in the movie exactly, right? The question is put in the Cobra Room. Are you really going to allow 80 people to die in order not to kill this one girl? And the one person said, yes, yes, absolutely. And the interesting part, I think, about what the movie explores, you know, not, not in an overstated way, it's quite, it's, I think it's subtle, but it's there, is that what's often missed by the uh, utilitarian consequentialist approach is they don't factor in the second and third order costs of the action, right? It's easy to say, well, of course, six lives are better than one, right? It's better that, that six people live and, and one person die than the other way around. But that doesn't factor in the second and third order costs, right? And once you factor those in, even if from a utilitarian consequentialist perspective, it's not clear, right, that the, the, the pulling the switch makes sense, right? And here, the, the foreign minister and others are pointing to, there are second and third order consequences here. And, and again, you know, sort of spoiler alert, but you fast forward to the very end of the movie. And here you have this very sort of modern progressive father who's bringing up his, his daughter in a sort of feminist way. And he thinks that Al-Shabaab are, are fanatics to be despised. But at the end of the movie, when his daughter is dying in his hands and Al-Shabaab has helped him try to save her, you are left with the sense that he is now radicalized, right? He is going to be absolutely opposed to both Kenyan forces and Western countries who have who've basically killed his daughter, right? And these are the second and third order consequences that don't get factored into the consequentialist utilitarian calculus. Yeah, and these are so, I mean, these are so real. I think the film does a great job highlighting that. If you look, you know, just look today at situations around with you know, Gaza and elsewhere in the world and the sort of history of the U.S. targeted killing program uh, in terms of the larger impact the second and third order costs that you you talk about and i use the word targeted killing uh but perhaps that's something of a misnomer right i, I mean the notion is that it's very it's very clean uh in terms of it's very accurate the intelligence is very good and so the way the movie sets it up is it's very clear who these people are uh it's very clear what they're doing and so then it's really just about this ethical, moral, political decision, once you got by the legal aspect, of whether or not we should launch the missile and take out these suspects. And so the debate happens around, you know, this otherwise sort of very clear set of facts. But 
I don't know, Craig. I mean, is it is it always that clear? Is the you know are there more gray areas in the real world in terms of whether or not you know what the facts are on the ground, so to speak? Yeah, no, I think that's one of the criticisms of this movie. Right? Is that well, first of all, it involves some technology that doesn't yet exist. Right? So the little beetle and hummingbird drone certainly in 2015 did not exist. But I think the bigger criticism is that it it creates this illusion that intelligence is incredibly accurate, right? That the information that the operations team is, is relying on is incredibly accurate. It also creates this impression that there is room for disagreement and pushback and second guessing within the operations team, right? So there is this moment, like it's a very dramatic moment where the commander of the drone, right, who's a lieutenant, or lieutenant, to use the American term. The lieutenant is in Nevada, and the colonel, the British colonel, is saying, fire. And he's saying, I want a recalculation of the CDE. And and his superior officer, who's 100 yards away in another building, sort of says, what, are you crazy? What are you doing? You're pushing back against a colonel. And he says, like, I have the right to do this. And he does, right? And, and the director in an interview talks about a, an incident where this actually happened. But it is misleading, right? So I, I've actually done some some writing. I, I published a piece around this time, actually, 2016, I think, called the Means Methods Paradox, where I look at and explore the question of why it is that targeted killing with drones in particular was at the time causing higher rates of civilian casualties than one, than might be expected. A, a declassified report from the U.S. Air Force or, or Central Command had indicated that there were higher civilian casualties from drone strikes than there were from the use of other aerial attacks, which is counterintuitive, right? You would expect that drone strikes would be far more precise. There's a whole host of reasons why you would expect drone strikes to be more compliant with IHL. They can persist over the target for great lengths of time. They have operations teams that are spread out. You have intelligence analysis looking at reams of video to analyze the, the data on the ground. The team is operating in a relatively no-stress environment as opposed to a fixed-wing aircraft you know, pilot that's on, on site and is at risk of being fired upon by enemy forces. The drone operators are in Las Vegas and you know, the intelligence uh, team in this movie are in Hawaii. Right? They are under no risk whatsoever. So you would expect for all of these reasons that the drone operators would be operating at lower risk, lower stress. There's more people involved in the decision-making. They have far more intelligence. They have more time to make the decisions. For all of those reasons, you would expect them to make less errors. But my research indicated that, in fact, there's reasons to suspect that, well, first of all, the data shows that they are making mistakes. They are making targeting errors. And there are some very high-profile instances, not least of which you know everybody will remember just in 2022, during the withdrawal from Kabul, there was a drone strike of what was thought to be an ISIS member who was preparing to plant a bomb at the airport. It turned out to be an aid worker, and 10 people were killed, including seven children. And that was a complete targeting error. Right? There's another attack in Afghanistan when General McChrystal was in command there, where a convoy of three trucks carrying some, something in the order of 25 people was struck after a drone had been covering it for six hours. And all of the people in the trucks were 
were civilian, including women and children, many children under six years old. And the, the audio transcripts were released. It was one of the few of these strikes where the investigation was actually made public. When you look at the audio, you see a number of characteristics that reflect cognitive consistency theory misperception problems in the sense that there's, there's confirmation bias, there's overwhelming confidence in the accuracy of the intelligence, there is interpretation of ambiguous information to conform with pre-existing assumptions and hypotheses, that being that these are insurgents. There is therefore a suppression of data that is inconsistent with those hypotheses. And so I don't want to get too deeply into the weeds, but the, the research shows that there are psychological phenomena operating and that the nature of the technology and the structure of the teams is such that it is conducive to this kind of psychological misperception, right? And, and operation of groupthink. The other thing that was very clear in the transcript of the Uruzgan strike was that anytime anybody tried to voice any question about the nature of the evidence that they were seeing on the video, it was suppressed. So there was an operation of groupthink, which is completely contrary to what you see in the movie. Right? In the movie, you're having all of this second guessing and pushback, and that doesn't seem to happen in real life, as far as we can tell, right? On the basis of the few disclosures of, of transcripts of strikes, there's, on the contrary, a sort of an operation of groupthink and a, a, a suppression of data that, or reinterpretation of data that's in any way inconsistent with the the starting hypothesis that these are insurgents and that this has led to serious targeting errors and violations of IHL. Well, I think the movie also does, I think, a pretty good job of exploring some of the impact on, of the new drone warfare on the participants, right? So you mentioned before the, the U.S. airman, his name is Watts, played by Aaron Paul, who demands the calculation, the recalculation of the, the collateral damage estimate. Because he's concerned about the girl, right? And he's concerned that he's the one that's going to be personally really responsible for her uh, death. So he feels it. And you can see it, I think, in other in other ways. Just the, I mean, just the nature of the way the operation's conducted. It's, you know, it, the, the mission's being flown essentially from thousands of miles away at a, a, a you know, in a military base, an Air Force base in Nevada, the desert. The way that people kind of that are going to, everyone's kind of coming to work. Like it's almost like they're coming to their jobs at nine o'clock in the morning. They're the day at work, and they're but their work is fighting this war. Whether it's in Nevada at the Air Force Base or the headquarters in London, Alan Rickman, the British general's on goes on, on his way to work. As you know, there's a scene with him buying this doll for his daughter. It turns out he gets the wrong one, but it, it's so there's a sense that this is very different in terms of that. And, and, but there's an impact on the people that are involved, and there's this. Great scene at the end, I think, where after the British undersecretary, the one who's pushed back hardest against the strike, sort of, you know, confronts Alan Rickman and says, you know, do you know what you've done? You know, there are real costs here. And, you know, he gives, I think, a very powerful response. And all done from the safety of your chair. I have attended the immediate aftermath of five suicide bombings on the ground with the bodies. What you witnessed today with your coffee and biscuits is terrible. 
what these men would have done would have been even more terrible. Never tell a soldier that he does not know the cost of war. So what do you think about the costs? There are costs of war and they are born, I think, to some extent by these people, by the military officials who are making these decisions, carrying out these orders, even though it is this much more kind of antiseptic, clinical way of fighting war. I don't know. I'd love to get your reaction to that. Yeah, no, I think it's a really interesting issue. And, and you're, the movie does a wonderful job. Like the scenes of Alan Rickman, you know, buying this doll on his way to a, a lethal, I mean, he doesn't know it yet that it's going to be a lethal uh, operation, but still. And there's debate, or there used, there was debate over this, right? There was this idea that there was the so-called PlayStation effect. There was this concern that drone operators working in, you know, Las Vegas would be conducting operations almost like it was a video game on PlayStation and they wouldn't feel the, the full ethical ramifications of what they were doing and that therefore there would be more cowboy behavior on their part. I, I think the evidence shows that's quite incorrect and it's, it's actually the contrary, right? That a disproportionate number of these people experience PTSD in part, I think, because of the surreal juxtaposition of they are engaging in these legal operations in a, you know, in a trailer in Las Vegas. And as the movie depicts, they are required to remain over the target, to zoom in, to identify the bodies of those that they have killed, which has to be like just a, an incredibly difficult uh, experience. And then, you know, half an hour later, they're in the backyard with a beer in their hand, barbecuing with the family, right? Like that is just a completely different experience than what I think members of armed forces are typically used to. I mean, it's one thing if you're on site, you're at risk, you're with your colleagues who are, you know, it's just a very different experience. And I think that the movie depicts that quite well. They come out of the trailer and it's, you know, the sun's rising and it's like, you know, home to the family. Uh, there's another movie, I forget the name of it, starring Ethan Hawke as a, a drone operator, which I think explores this uh, in more depth. So I, I do think that the movie explores that well. And there, there is this, this issue of the effects on those that are conducting these operations. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you just almost know that the Aaron Paul character, right, is, I mean, is going to suffer secondary effects, right? He's not, he's not going to get over this, you know, too quickly. Another aspect that the film gets into, I think, is the role of lawyers in right. drone operations, right? And there are multiple conversations between... Uh, Colonel Powell, the Helen Mirren character, and the British Army attorney going back and forth over whether or not she should or would need to, as you use the words, refer up, right? So I think lawyers play an uh, underappreciated role in these type of operations. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about the, the role of these military lawyers in the film and in, in real life? No, I think it's a, a really important point. I mean, I think that if you go back you know, pre 9-11, certainly. I mean, when I was uh, an officer in the Canadian military, JAGs were not very prominent. Like, you know, they, they were certainly not involved in operational decision-making to the same extent. But in the post 9-11 world, it, it, lawyers became much, much more involved. And I think it's quite common to have lawyers involved in, in decision-making like this. And I think the the relationship between the lawyer in this case, the JAG in this case, and Helen Mirren, the colonel, is really quite interesting. As you say, I mean, there's this this 
dramatic moment when she's almost trying to get him to bless the decision that she wants to make. He makes the point, like, I'm not here to make the decision. You have to make the decision. I'm just here to tell you what is lawful and what is not. Errol, where are we legally? With the girl. Yes. Are we in the clear? Uh, again, I would refer up. No. No, I'm asking you. We cannot hold up this operation any longer. We need to take all reasonable steps to minimize collateral damage. If we're buying her bread... We're not. We're not buying her bread. That's over. Many children's lives are at risk. This is just one girl. Are we clear to engage? Yes or no? Come on, make a decision. With respect, Mum, I don't make those decisions. I am here to advise you on the law. The law is not here to get in your way. It is here to protect you and to protect your target. Don't lecture me, Harold. Mom, the legal questions of necessity and proportionality are almost certainly met, but for the protection of you and for the protection of that girl, I would refer up to the Attorney General. But what's interesting is that, that the dynamic in that room, as you mentioned, you alluded to earlier, the fact that Helen Mirren puts pressure on a sergeant to adjust his casualty estimates, the CDEs. So he has said, look, I, there's a 65% probability that the girl is going to be severely injured or killed. And she puts pressure on him to adjust it down to less than 50% because she's had a conversation with the general and says, like, if, if I can get it to below 50, do you think they'll go for it? They being the mm -hmm. politicians. And the general says, yes. Which, you know, and pausing there for a moment, what's interesting is like, this is not necessary for legal purposes, right? I mean, I think it's already been established that under the principle of proportionality, the killing of one civilian would be justified and, and would not be excessive in relation to the direct and concrete military advantage to be gained. But it's for political reasons. She's trying to convince the politicians. But, but her pressuring of the sergeant to revise down his collateral damage estimates is clearly unethical. And the lawyer is standing right there watching her. And he, he's clearly aghast, but he doesn't step in. And what's even worse is that you know, once the operation is completed, the colonel then turns to the sergeant and says, make sure that your report reflects that it was a 45% CDE, which again, I think is, is just entirely unethical. And I think it's worth pausing for a moment, just also the, the one thing we haven't talked about is that at the very end of the movie, there's a second strike, right? So they, they engage in the strike. The girl is injured. She's lying on the ground. The father is running to get her. They're all watching this on the video in high definition. And they zoom in to identify the bodies. And it is clear that the British subject, the woman who is a high-valued target within Al-Shabaab, is moving, severely injured, but moving in the rubble of the house. And Helen Mirren, the colonel, says, prepare to, to fire again. She's a high-value target. She's on the list. We have to take her out. And what's fascinating about the movie is there's no pushback and there's no discussion. There's no debate in Cobra. Like, like, like they just take the second strike. And in my view, this was clearly a violation of IHL. In fact, I think it was, it's a grave breach of the Geneva Conventions constituting a war crime. That individual crawling around in the rubble was then a protected person under the Geneva Conventions. And even if this is a non-international armed conflict under common article three of the Geneva Conventions, she's a protected person and cannot be targeted at that time. It's called a double tap, right? To use lethal force against someone. And then when you see that they're injured, but not yet dead, to take a second shot. And the movie doesn't explore it. It just leaves it there. It's, very, it's a very interesting choice from a movie-making perspective. 
But we focus on this in my law of armed conflict class. Like that second strike was surely a violation of IHL. It's so interesting because the yeah, the, the focus of the movie is on the first strike, which from a legal perspective, assuming the law of armed conflict ap- applies, is comfortably within the law under the under the uh, assessment of necessity, distinction and proportionality. Uh, but it's the, as you say, it's the second strike, the double tap, which is not given any attention where you really have the IHL violation, which also I think just underscores one point, which is was implicit in what you were saying and about the application of IHL, right? So IHL does, as you said earlier on, uh, allow, empower the use of lethal force, right? I mean, it gives states uh, a much greater ability to use lethal force than they do in, in the domestic peacetime human rights framework. However, right. right, it also has a criminal, IHL has a criminal regime of, of war crimes uh, in particular. And so if you violate these rules, uh, potentially, um, th- those, are, those are war crimes and those would be punishable under international law as well as under domestic law in the UK and the US. That's right. I mean, it's a subset of, of the rules, right? So yeah. there are violations of IHL that, that do not attract individual criminal responsibility. But then there are these subset under the Geneva Conventions. These are called grave breaches. And you know, in the Rome Statute for the International Criminal Court, they're itemized in Article 8 that lay out those offenses that would constitute war crimes and which would attract individual criminal responsibility. And, and certainly, I think the, you know, the, the targeting of a protected person, somebody who is injured and hors de combat, uh, is in that category. So, Craig, before we wrap up, uh, are there any other movies about uh, IHL, the laws of war that you think are particularly informative, useful, uh, I guess, either for bad or for good? Well, I mean, there's there's tons. I, I've actually debated sort of creating a, a page on the Jib Jab Laws of War podcast website with all these movies that both have either use in bellow IHL or use at bellum aspects. Um, you know, a couple or a few, I guess, that come to mind. So one is a documentary. It's not a feature film, but it's still, I think, a, a fantastic film. And it's, it's actually useful for teaching as well Is Taxi to the Dark Side, which is a documentary about the torture program. And it focuses on detention of a couple of individuals in Afghanistan. But that, that just sort of provides the, the narrative arc. It, it examines the torture program in, in more detail in the United States. Uh, and so it's, it's a very well done film. Another, an older film, two older films, which I think, you know, are classics and anybody interested in the laws of war, you know, sort of would want to watch is Breaker Morant, which is an Australian film set in the Boer War. And, and again, involves, it's a trial. So, I mean, there are a number of movies that involve trials for violations of IHL and Breaker Morant is a great one. Another is Paths of Glory, which is a Stanley Kubrick film set in World War I with uh, Kirk Douglas. Great film. You know, I think we're, we're recording this on the morning that the ICJ just handed down its provisional measures order in the South African case against Israel for genocide. So I think apropos of genocide, it, it, an incredibly powerful movie is Conspiracy, which is uh, Kenneth Branagh plays General Heydrich and Stanley Tucci plays Adolf Eichmann in the Vance conference where the final solution is developed in the meeting outside of Vance. And it's based on the minutes of the meeting. It's a brilliant film. The entire movie is outrageously disturbing and chilling. But there's this one chilling moment where they go around the room and say, like, how many of you are lawyers? 
and you realize that you know the vast majority of the people in the room are lawyers. And so for lawyers, uh, I think watching conspiracy is is uh, really important. Another a feature film about m- more modern conflict is called A War. It's a Danish film set in Afghanistan about uh, an officer and, and the choices that he has to make. Um, so there's a whole a host of other ones that you know we could talk about. Okay. I think one last plug I'll make for your viewers: there's a movie that has been nominated for both Best Picture and Best Foreign Film, and it's still in theaters. Is called Zone of Interest, which is I think one of the most chilling Holocaust movies I've ever seen. And it's you know I don't I, I won't spoil the movie, but but what's what's Extraordinary about the movie is it's about the commandant of Auschwitz. It's sort of an illustration of Hannah Arendt's The Banality of Evil Hypothesis. You almost never see any of the detainees, victims of the Holocaust in Auschwitz. And yet it manages to be one of the most disturbing and chilling movies about the Holocaust I've seen. It's, it's like, it's not fun to watch, but it is important and really worth, worth seeing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I just saw Zone of Interest, and it is it is chilling. I, in fact, I saw it on the same day. I guess it was a. I don't know if I'd recommend combining them, but the Steve McQueen documentary called Occupied City, which depicts going back into Amsterdam. Actually, a lot of it was filmed during COVID. Wow. And he goes back to sort of each place where house or business, and the, the shots are, are of what the location is today and the people there today. But he tells kind of the history of what happened there. Um, so, I mean, that's a great film too, but, um, I agree about zone of interest and, uh, the other films you mentioned are all great. We actually did, I did breaker Morant on the podcast. So, uh, I, I recommend, yeah, it's a, a super powerful depiction of some of the ethical and legal issues around war crimes trials and the Boer war. And I put in a point too, for the Mauritanian, which uh, film about Mohamed Uslahi. Uh, Guantanamo detainee who I represented with others who I think is a very good depiction of torture at Guantanamo and then how that corrupted the military commission, the war crime trial process that was put in place. Yeah, I just saw that quite recently. Yeah, I would second that as well. And and while we're on the topic, I guess you could throw in the report, which I think is actually a pretty good movie about the development of the Senate Intelligence Committee's report on enhanced interrogation techniques. It's quite well done. And then there's Zero Dark Thirty, which I think uh, I, I, probably the most relevant in some ways to uh, the film we're discussing to the extent that they're in dialogue, I think, uh, which I, I found problematic in some respects. Yeah, I have a lot of problems with Zero Dark Thirty, right? And and in particular, I mean, it, it I think it tries to make, it leaves the audience, it misleads the audience into thinking that somehow waterboarding and, and the use of enhanced interrogation techniques led to so-called actionable intelligence. Like, and I, I would just, you know, for, for those of your viewers who have seen it and are fans of it, you know, I would, I would encourage them to you know, find on YouTube uh, John Brennan's press conference in the aftermath of the, the publication of the executive summary of the Intelligence Committee's, the Senate Intelligence Committee's report on enhanced interrogation techniques, where he's asked the question about whether, in fact, enhanced interrogation, interrogation techniques led to actionable intelligence. And he said, it's unknowable. Like, so when the director of the CIA tells you the best he can do is tell you it's unknowable as to whether the enhanced interrogation techniques led to actionable intelligence, like that's a damning conclusion. 
Right. And and so Zero Dark Thirty, which there's allegations that the CIA had had involvement in, in in reviewing the script and so forth, I think it is is really misleading in that regard. Certainly, and the torture program had those second and third order effects that you were talking right. about in the context of drone strikes. In terms of even if you got some, arguably some actionable intelligence, right? What are what were the consequences in terms of radicalizing populations? and leading to you know, just sort of more, basically more terrorists, right? I mean, that's basically creating people who are more opposed. So I think it's sort of the same thing applies to the torture program uh, very much. Right. And, and again, it's not just the radicalizing of people and, and creating strategic blowback. It corrupted institutions within the United States, right? I mean, this is one of the issues of torture is that it, in many countries where like Ch Chile and Argentina, where they've engaged in torture of this kind, Empirical research shows that it starts off as some very confined program that's limited to a very small number of people who are only going to use it against the, the worst of the worst, as Donald Rumsfeld said, but it bleeds into everything. And the report, I think, the movie, uh, does a good job of showing ex exactly how this bleeds into institutions within the United States, such that the CIA is now spying on an a Senate Intelligence Committee and hacking into their computers. Right, which is just one indicia of the ways in which the torture program corrupted institutions within the United States. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I we did an episode comparing the two films, Zero Dark Thirty and and the report, and I uh, basically ah. yeah underscoring exactly what you said. Yeah, with with Karen Greenberg. So well, great, Craig. Well, it's been so great talking to you about Eye in the Sky, the movie, and about IHL and the legal, moral, ethical, political implications. You know, it's an honor to have you on the podcast. So I really appreciate you making the time for joining. Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. And, you know, as, as I said, I'm envious of, of your podcast. And it, I just love the idea of exploring law through film and film through law. It's just, it's an awesome project. So thanks very much for having me. Of course. And we'll have to do it again. Yeah, I agree. Totally. Take care. Take care. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. If you have any comments, feedback, critiques, or suggestions for future episodes, please do send me an email. My contact info is on the website, which is jibjabpodcast.com. You can also find links to the material discussed today and all the reading recommendations to date on the website. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter, or X as it's now called, at, at jibjabpodcast for updates on the coming episodes. This podcast is produced by me, Craig Martin, the opening music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. Until next time, take care.